Dr. Medina, I have one quick question. Okay. How did an affiliate professor of bioengineering at the University of Washington get involved in how the brain works? <laughs> well, I've been interested for a long, long time in how the brain processes information. And my research interests are the genetics of psychiatric disorders. So I spent a long time thinking about how the brain develops in the womb at the level of cell and gene. I'm a developmental molecular biologist, as you said. But I'm also interested in what happens when uh, the baby is born and then grows up, and years later you get a psychiatric disorder. So I'm interested in sweet dialects of brain science, the behavioral stuff, the cellular stuff, and then my home base, which is my favorite molecule in the whole world, the DNA molecule, the helix. How all of those relate to each other, and aging very much falls into that category at the, I would call it the back end of, of human experience, whereby you've had your, you've gone through your infancy, and you've gone through your puberty, and you've gone through a great deal of life. The brain hasn't yet finished uh, growing, hasn't finished learning, even hasn't finished developing, and being able to tell folks about how all that works is actually a pretty natural part of my professional career. Tell me what general science is all about. Well, this is the study that in times past it was called geriatrics, and that's still around, but the general sciences themselves is really the study of what it is we were just talking about. You can see aging in somebody's face if you take a look at, you know, back when somebody was uh, uh, five years old and 10 and 20 and 50, uh, you can see that the skin is aging and the hair is aging. What's not so easy to see is what's going on three centimeters below that scalp, what's going on with the brain. So the whole idea of utilizing this book is to talk a little bit about that. What goes on? How does the brain age? And more importantly, how can you utilize what we know about in the general sciences, and that's the study of this stuff, what you can utilize in the general sciences to make the transit through the aging process comfortable, powerful, and in many particular ways, understand what you can do for people that are also going through the aging process to make their brains uh, whole and healthy and uh, vital even in the eighth and ninth decades of life. Well, let's jump into it. You have ten brain rules for aging well. Yep. You want to walk through some of them? I sure will. question you can ask is, what can you do to age uh, well? What, uh, what can you do that can aid in the uh, cognition? And there's a ton of these things. Here's one. So one, of the, uh, one of the most powerful pieces of information that's come out fairly recently is the power of socialization. You have to have lots of friends, and you have to have lots of relatives, and you have to interact with them a whole lot if you want your brain to age well. Uh, one study was done over, I think, about a 10-year period, involved about 1,000 seniors. Uh, the highest socializing group uh, that was studied uh, for those that were interacting a lot, and these are called social integration assays, the rate of cognitive decline, Gary, was 70% less than those people that didn't have a lot of friends and didn't have a lot of relatives and didn't inter interact with either of them. Memory decline in the highly socializing group was half that of non-socializers. So what I usually say to folks in terms of if you really want your brain to age well as you get older, have lots of friends. That's something you can actually start in your 30s and 40s. We know, for example, that your brain peaks around age 30, and after that, it's a decline. So if you really wanted to implement this stuff, you don't have to wait until you're drawing a Social Security check to be able to, to, be able to implement it. If you, don't have, if you have problems making friends, and if you have problems staying with your relatives, one of the best things you can do in your 30s and 40s is to start to build those bridges and make amends and learn how to become socially competent. 
acquiring that skill, particularly if you don't have it much, is going to pay dividends with such strength that I actually call it making a 529 for your old age, <laughs> whereby you're continually investing in your younger years so that in your older years you can you know, age well. So socializing is the first one. Want to do another? Um, yeah, you know, it's fascinating. I'm reading these rules, and it's almost like uh, the golden rule. Everything is what we're supposed to already know. <laughs> <laughs> I've never felt that the, that the brain sciences is ever going to uncover anything new for people that really know what they're doing. <laughs> we just have the ability to put numbers behind it and make it, you know, make it portable so that others can utilize it. Um, well, another interesting thing that's been studied that actually incorporates several brain rules is uh, uh, the power of dancing. And the okay, that's not a golden rule. I get it. <laughs> you win. <laughs> okay, get out there and dance, Gary. Uh, for, for people, for seniors that are regularly dancing, their posture and balance improves about 25%. They reduce the number of falls by about 37%. Uh, it's uh, uh, very powerful and changes something in the brain we call executive function. Executive function's got two big tiers in it. One of them is cognitive control which is the ability to shift attentional states and the ability to be present, to stay with, uh, uh, with uh, society at large. The second is impulse control, which is the ability when you feel like punching somebody in the nose that you don't do that because you've got good executive function. And uh, exercise, the dancing that comes with that exercise can improve executive function. Interestingly enough, it's not just the dancing. When you get older, and in fact, when I was, you know, just kind of doing some field work, because I live in an ivory tower and work with test tubes all day long, uh, would go out to assisted living centers or uh, uh, be with people that were aging, almost universally, what they would say, one of the most negative parts of it, is that they felt like they were continually being treated as invisible. People quit, they would look past them. People quit touching them. Uh, and you, we know that if you do non-sexual, non-exploitive uh, 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 touching in seniors, you can actually change their brain function. And so dancing has the ability to socialize with people, as long as you're not just sitting there wiggling in front of people and actually are doing some kind of ritualized motor skill, so, you know, like uh, dance, uh, foxtrot or, or whatever. The, uh, uh, if you do that, you get the socializing skills. And you get the exercise, there's your posture and balance and executive function, and non-exploited touching, at least at first. All three of those are done at once. And it's one of the reasons, so I put in the brain holes, particularly, you know, you got to get off your butt and go dancing. If you don't know how to do it, learn how to do it, and you can do that at any age. So that's another brain roll. Let me, let me talk about another one in particular. It has one of my favorite words in it, mindfulness. I still believe, I'm not a great practitioner, but I still believe in the concept. You have uh, rule number three is, Mindfulness not only soothes, but improves. Walk me through that. Well, let's talk first just briefly about mindfulness, because there are, I'm just going to call, there, there are two types of mindfulness. One, I will say, is the, oh, forgive me, parlor pop psychology mindfulness. Forgive me. That's kind of all over the map. There's lots of people that practice forms of it. But there is a type of mindfulness. John Kabat-Zinn is probably the biggest practitioner. Uh, that was able to show if you do mindfulness the way he talks about it and do a very prescribed set of behaviors, you can improve all kinds of things from attentional states to more of that executive function we were talking about. Mindfulness in general is, has, it has deep breathing exercises in it and also concentrated and control exercises. For example, I practice mindfulness myself. Gary, it sounds like you do too. Is that true? Well, practice, 
practice, practice. I'm not saying I'm any good at it, but I... <laughs> Nobody I know is good at it. <laughs> you just have to do it. The more mindfulness you do, the calmer you get. The less you become, your relationship with stress changes. And as a direct result of that, your ability to focus on things changes. Your ability to uh, uh, even certain reaction times and processing speeds begins to change simply because you've calmed down enough that stress hormones are no longer flooding the inside of your brain. So mindfulness, these contemplative exercises that you are supposed to do, has powerful brain functions that are well described in the modern uh, brain science laboratory. Let me jump to something that I think is on a lot of our minds as same about caregivers. It's uh, Chapter 6, Your Mind, Colon, Alzheimer's. Look for 10 signs before asking, do I have Alzheimer's? Sure. Talk to me about Chapter 6. People who've had uh, the beginnings of dementia usually know it years before it actually accrues, but they're so embarrassed by it and for a while can summon compensatory behaviors of such strength that they appear to be typical and normal in every way. But there will come a time when that will begin to pierce through in certain populations, and so uh, confusion is one of them. Another one is memory loss that disrupts daily living. This isn't the normal memory loss where you go down to the basement to retrieve something and you get down to the basement and you forget why the heck you went down there. Has that ever happened to you, Gary? <laughs> I, I live in Florida, so let's, let's say anywhere but basements, <laughs> but all the time. That's right. Florida doesn't have a lot of basements because your water table is, I don't know, around your kitchen They, they call that underground pools. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we, that's actually pretty typical. Sometimes called the doorway phenomenon. Uh, no kidding for people to study it. And it's typical. It's typical for 17-year-olds to do that. But when you go down to the basement and you forget you're down in the basement, and not only do you not know that you went to retrieve something, but, you, but you're not even sure how to get back upstairs, you've got an issue. And that actually dovetails with something else. Uh, a third uh, uh, sign is that you have difficulty completing familiar tasks. Uh, you used to know how to, you know, insert the key into the lock, and it may have taken you some cognitive resource to remember to do that. But there comes a time when Alzheimer's begins to uh, increase its shadow that the familiar tasks at home, at work, at leisure time, any of the things that are normally a part of your life, you begin forgetting how to do them, or you put them out of sequence. Uh, you can uh, ask the question, name me the uh, uh, months of the year, please, January, February, March, April, May, June, July. Now name them backwards, please. And uh, for most people, that's a cognitive load. Uh, it takes a little time, but most people can do it December, November, October, September. But being able to get out of sequence, uh, these familiar things you're used to doing, when that begins to become a huge issue, uh, um, you've got, you got a problem. Uh, another one is that you have problems with speaking and writing. That often percolates up, depends on the person. But, but there are new problems. These aren't the normal forgetting that, uh, you know, Harrison Ford started Dickard in Blade Runner. Uh, these are different, these are, uh, the inability to speak someone's name that you know really well or to be able to write a word. That's a, that's a big deal. Uh, challenges and problem, uh, planning, problem solving is another one. Poor judgment, uh, uh, uh misplacing things, putting perfume bottles in, uh, uh the spice rack and not thinking that there's anything wrong with that or forgetting that that's the case. One of the biggest is, is um, as you begin to see, because people in the, particularly in the beginning stages of Alzheimer's know terribly that something's wrong, and usually people respond to that by withdrawing from social activities, withdrawing from work, uh, beginning to become an island of themselves. 
because they begin to understand that, you know, something's happening. It's embarrassing. I don't want this to happen, and it might. And when you begin withdrawing from other people, when you begin withdrawing from your social work, you become at great risk for depression and anxiety, which is a whole different set of... Uh, uh, Isolation is a killer. What? I'm sorry? Isolation is a killer. Isolation is a killer. Loneliness actually kills people, for sure. But the ability to withdraw becomes natural simply because you are embarrassed, particularly in the initial stages. But in the final stages, there's dramatic changes in mood and personality. You have trouble understanding visual images, spatial relationships begin to hallucinate. You have the standard dimensions that are occurring eventually. What's interesting about it is that motor skills don't necessarily change. In fact, Alzheimer's usually leaves motor skills alone, but it, uh, what it mostly gets are the, are the cognitive skills. But in the end, motor skills uh, uh, are changing also, and those end stages are really tough uh, to deal with. Average age from initial diagnosis to death is about seven to eight years, uh, depending on, uh, on what's being taken. So it can take a while for all of this to manifest. But that, those know, are the, this, the symptoms. And, this, uh, sounds, this sounds like a book that any caregiver or any adult really should have on their shelf to um, help themselves age as slowly as, or as well as possible um, or to recognize um, situations in their loved ones. Give me an idea. Of, if I follow this practicum to the letter, um, am, am I in the Olympics again at 21 years old? What, what, what kind of results will I see? <laughs> What you can show is that you can, nobody is going to beat the clock. Eventually, everybody will die. And so, you know, initially thinking about writing this book, I'm now 61 years old. I'm thinking, do I really want to write a depressing book like that? <laughs> but where the hope in all of that comes in is that you, you may not be able to do the Olympics for sure, but there is a ton of things that can be done. Only between 25 and 33% of the variance in human lifespan is directly attributable to how well you chose your parents, okay? <laughs> that simply means the genetics plays a part, but not a whole part. You know what that means, Harry? That means between uh, 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 25, er, between uh, uh, 67 and 75% of the things you can do are up to you and your lifestyle if you want to transit through the aging process as well. I'll give you certain, uh, some examples. Uh, um, there's a thing called episodic memory. Episodic memory is a memory for episodes. Like if you remember Gilligan's Island, it's got characters, they interact with each other, it's got a time stamp on it, that's episodic memory. It usually declines with age, but it doesn't have to. Here's a way we know you can improve episodic memory. This is Denise Parks' uh, work, something called the Synapse Project. Shows an increase in about 600% uh, 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 from baseline with episodic memory if you do this. Regularly get into arguments with people you don't agree with. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should be I should be 21 years old then. <laughs> well, you can certainly feel like it, but it's, she calls it productive engagement. When you product now, this has to be with people that essentially are your friends. They can't be the, the people that are trolling you. They can't be the people that uh, 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 get under your skin and you have uh, such anger towards that it ends up fracturing a relationship. You have to do it with people though that don't agree with you. I regularly recommend if you think that Rush Limbaugh is the height of political discourse. You need to regularly tune into MSNBC and Rachel Maddow so that you can get the other side. If you think that Lawrence O'Donnell from MSNBC is the height of political discourse, 
You need to regularly be tuning into Fox News and Tucker Carlson so that you can be uh, continually confronted with your own categories. If you do that on a regular basis, if you do this productive engagement stuff, you can change episodic memory. You can improve episodic memory. And it's really simple to do. You can do this in your charity. That's one. Here's another. You need to read Dead Tree books 3.5 hours per day, period. Oh. Start reading. You, if you do, you will be 17% less likely to die by a certain age, all-cause mortality is called. If you read more than three and a half hours a day, you, can, uh, you will change that all-cause mortality by 23%. So for caregivers that are in their 30s and 40s that really want to get their lifestyles going so that they themselves can transit through the aging process, get out a dead tree book and read it. Notice how I said dead tree, by the way. Um, yeah, I love that. I love that phrase. Yeah, you can't do that on an iPad. You have to do it on a single-use item. The reason why is that if you do it electronically with dual-use or multiple-use gadgets, the distraction is so large that you can swap out the result. So it needs to be a dead tree book and you read all the time. So, uh, Gary, since all of our brains have stopped uh, functioning really well at age 30 and on our long, slow decline, everybody should be reading. So that's one. Here's another, uh, another one that's like this, too. Uh, and it may be related to the productive engagement. You can show that if you, for uh, this experiment was done for four months, where they took somebody and taught them how to play a piano. I think these were uh, seventy-year-olds. Taught them theory, taught them sight reading, uh, sight reading uh, for uh, a four-month period. Saw whopping changes in that executive function we were talking about, uh, and they also felt less depressed and less anxious. In fact, if you read through the book, uh, Brain Rules for Aging Well, there's a common theme that you'll see throughout all of the chapters. Um, and it's this. Continually get out of yourself if you want to improve your brain. Something you can actually do at any age. You, you need to become less self-centered. No kidding. In fact, one powerful way to do this is to continually, at the end of every night, uh, if, you, if you want to change the dopamine structures in the brain, dopamine is a, is a neurotransmitter, dopaminergic system is the system that, that guides it, you need to write down three things you're grateful for every day. No kidding. And not only do you have to write down the item, you have to write down why you're grateful for them. That's key in order to get the finding. Um, an example might be, I saw my, if you write down, I'm grateful for my nephew. I saw him today and that was great. Why? Well, if you think about it for a second, maybe you are so relieved that your nephew is succeeding. <laughs> you know, he's in college now or he's doing something. Uh, whatever it is, that, 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 uh, maybe you're just grateful for him because you love him and you haven't seen him in a while. You write that down. doesn't matter. What that does, Terry, is that that pulls you out of your own experience and gets you into somebody else's experience. This is why productive engagement is so good when you start to get into arguments with people that you don't agree with because you have to hear their point of view. It's one of the reasons why reading is so good because you're now getting uh, involved in another world so you're pulling you out of yourself, if that makes sense. Music would be the same way. You can't just focus on your aching hip because, by God, you need to understand what a perfect fist is, and you need to be able to play this stupid piano piece by Weber <laughs> or something like that. I would argue that socializing is the same way when you're actively involved in something else. One really powerful way to delay the onset of dementia is to learn a new language. But it's the same thing. You can actually delay the onset of dementia by about four years. You can become bilingual. No kidding. 
but that forces you out of yourself and even out of the very words you speak and forces you to do something else. So here's that common theme. So powerful is this that if in your 30s and 40s you begin regularly teaching other people, you actually reduce your chance of getting Alzheimer's disease, particularly if you can teach an intergenerational class. What would be the single most important piece of advice you want to impart to this group of caregivers? Regularly find someone that you have, that has mentored you, that has meant a lot to you, and you write them a love letter, about 300 words. And then if possible, if possible, find that person, go to them, and read them your love letter. If you do that on a regular basis, not only wonderful things happen to you when dopamine is flooding into your system and uh, the aches and pains and the, and the things you deal with as a caregiver all day long, you begin to realize that people have had deep insights into your life and you realize the impact they've had on your life when you then read that letter to them and you see them light up like it was the 4th of July, yeah. go ahead, Gary, try not to cry, okay? <laughs> well, that's rule number That's rule number two, the attitude of gratitude. It is the attitude of gratitude. 